At this time, we'll now continue with our uh, sermon series and the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin chapter 7, the last chapter, and I'd like to invite Kingsley to read the scripture passage. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the reading of God's Word. Well, good morning. We are continuing and getting near the end of our series on Jesus' teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. It's one of his most famous discourses. And in it, Jesus has been calling us to a higher standard of love, of purity, of compassion, of care than the culture around Jesus and around us has developed. In fact, the standard that Jesus gives here is so exacting, so beautiful, so haunting, so inspiring, and yet so seemingly impossible that it creates two bipolar reactions. One, a sense of condemnation if we're not living up to it, but Secondly, a sense of condescending pride if we feel like we're doing better at it than other people are. And it's the second issue, this issue of judgmental pride that Jesus warns us against here near the end of his discourse. And certainly this issue, this kind of unforgiving judgmental spirit, certainly our present moment knows much of this in our culture. We're presently involved in deep and intense culture wars on our continent where opposing sides regularly demonize and belittle their opponents' positions. Uh, In Canada, our more dominant, the progressive culture, at least in Toronto, uh, is now being described in various ways, both here and in other major cities. A name it and shame it culture, a cancel culture, a call out culture. And all of these labels are in their own way reductionistic and simplistic, but The sheer variety of them and number of them pointing to the same kinds of characteristics ought to awaken us to the fact that there is something going on in our present moment that's quite judgmental and quite unforgiving. And Jesus says here, let this not be so in the community of faith I call my followers. And so here Jesus says three things that he wants us to hear. One, obey the gospel principle I give you. Obey the principle do not be judgmental. Secondly, adopt a gospel perspective of looking at your own sin first. And thirdly, follow a gospel process of clearing your own sin out in repentance um, before you engage in confronting others of clearing theirs. So, obey the gospel principle, adopt the gospel perspective, follow the gospel process. Let's look at those three. Firstly, obey the gospel principle. Jesus says here in the first verse, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verses one and two. Gospel principle, don't judge. Or better understood, don't be judgmental. Because the word for judge 
The Greek word has many possible ranges of meanings. Context determines what it actually means. Does it mean judge wisely? Does it mean to judge finally and judicially? Or does it mean to be judgmental in interpersonal relationships? And scholars are almost all agreed it's this last one, being judgmental in interpersonal relationships. Jesus is not saying never judge anything. Because the rest of the New Testament were called to judge things. But what Jesus is saying here, don't be in your interpersonal relationships judgmental because you will be judged in the same way that you are judging. God is the one who will be judging you. And God is just. If you go after people for for being proud, for example, God will look into your soul and apply the same questions to you. Do you have any pride? And in his infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, he will see all of your pride and you will be judged for it. If you judge people for being unwise, God will examine these acts of foolishness that we've all done. And he will pin us, spiritually speaking, to the ground with our lack of wisdom. God will use as a just God this principle of reciprocity. You want to point a finger? The other three that are pointing back at you, God will use to show you your own guilt. Jesus, without saying it, is letting his readers feel the weight of this idea. If you want to give other people no grace, then expect no grace from God. For what if God judged you the way you are judging other people? How would you come out? How would I come out? If every thought we had was judged by the same exacting measure that Jesus is saying we often do to others, We ought to tremble at the thought of an infinitely holy God judging us for those. And the deepest implication is the one that the commentator D.A. Carson, one of the New Testament scholars most trusted, writes about when he examines this passage. He says, We should abolish judgmental attitudes, lest we ourselves stand utterly condemned before God. Because a judgmental attitude excludes us from God's pardon, for it betrays an unbroken spirit before him. You see, hear Jesus carefully. To have an unforgiving, judgmental spirit is so against the gospel, so radically opposed to every part of the gospel of God's free grace, that it actually begins to reveal where you are with respect to the gospel, where you are with respect to the God of grace. We remember the words of Jesus earlier in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. He's not saying forgiveness is a condition of God forgiving. It's evidence that you have been forgiven and the forgiving grace of God has entered your soul and upended the judgmental, proud dynamic that often operates in us and created that new dynamic that reflects true Christians, this dynamic of grace and forgiveness. You see, a judgmental spirit, an unforgiving spirit, these are spiritually lethal things. These things are unacceptable for God and unacceptable for God's people. We ought to act differently because the gospel is built on a very different perspective, which we're about to see in our second point. Being judgmental shows you haven't gone to that second perspective. You haven't really understood and appropriated the gospel. And so then Jesus gives us that that gospel perspective, that second point, in verse 3 and verse 4 when he says, 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in my own? Jesus here is moving beyond the principle, don't be judgmental, to the perspective that causes judgmental inclinations, attitudes, and ways of behaving. And the underlying perspective here that he's getting at is self-righteousness, thinking we are better, more morally superior than others. We not only slide into self-righteousness, we often blind ourselves to the fact that we're doing it. D.I. Carson again on this passage. We human beings, he says, display a vast capacity for self-deception. For example, we often prostitute righteousness into self-righteousness. Perfection into a perfect reputation. But we accomplish this so cleverly that we are at best only vaguely aware of the monstrosity that we have wrought. Do you hear him? We just have such a tendency for self-deception leading to self-righteousness. And by the way, it's not just Christian writers who've noticed this. In her now classic book called White Fragility, author and academic Robin D'Angelo points out that for progressive white people in our culture right now, our whole identity is embedded with the idea of being morally virtuous or pure. Therefore, this makes our present progressive white culture extremely defensive when challenged with attitudes that they have that might contribute to racism. Listen to D'Angelo as she says this. For white people, their identities rest on the idea of racism as being about good or bad people, about moral or immoral singular acts. And if we're good moral people, we can't be racist. We don't engage in those acts. We whites who position ourselves as liberal often opt to protect what we perceive as our moral reputations rather than recognize or change our participation in systems of inequity. Do you hear her? It's not just religious people. But it's not just progressive white people either who base our identities so heavily on our sense of our own purity and righteousness. Everyone, everyone struggles with self-righteousness. Everyone struggles with wanting our identity to be pure and wanting to be able to judge others. And in fact, a heart that is inclined towards self-righteousness is also a fountain for judgmental thoughts and attitudes because that heart wants constantly to validate itself. And it does so by looking at others and judging others as less morally pure than I am. A judgmental, unforgiving culture is the product of those kinds of hearts filled with those kinds of inclinations to self-righteousness. And so that kind of hypocrisy suddenly begins to embed itself within a culture. We know that in Canadian culture, we always talk about how tolerant we are and want to be and how blind we often are to how intolerant, relentlessly intolerant we can be to people who don't model themselves after the quote-unquote tolerant behavior we have prescribed. But Jesus says, there's a better way. There's a gospel way. Stop looking at the speck. Literally in the Greek, that refers to a piece of wood the size of a splinter or maybe even sawdust. Tiny. Stop looking at the speck in the eye of the other person and look at the beam. The Greek word here means the main beam that holds up your house. 
it's it's you couldn't have a bigger contrast in terms of wood than, than this metaphor that this analogy Jesus is giving. Jesus is saying there's a gospel perspective that can profoundly reshape us. Instead of seeing ourselves as self-righteous and therefore needing to judge and earning the right to judge, taking God's place as judge, we see ourselves as not being righteous, but instead needing and indeed receiving as a gift the righteousness of somebody else. Because that is the gospel. You see, here's the gospel. We have no righteousness of our own to boast about before the actual judge God. Romans 3, 9, verse 10. For we have already seen that all, both Jews and Greeks, that means all non-Jewish people, are under sin, says the Apostle Paul. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's the gospel perspective. But it continues. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace... We are saved through faith. And this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of our works that no one should boast. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying what Jesus was saying. That the the new perspective that the gospel brings, this perspective of not being righteous in yourself, but having someone else's righteousness be counted for you, is the righteousness we need in the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it so pithily. He says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness accounted to us. And so Jesus says, adopt that perspective. When you see the sins, weaknesses, or flaws in other people, see yourself as equally, more unrighteous even. See yourself as having a beam, not just a speck. Equally or more in need of grace as the one you're thinking of confronting or or judging. Now, I want us to reflect on some implications that, that occur when we get this gospel perspective of looking first to the beam in our own eye. When you have this grace perspective, it does something to you. Your perspective on you changes. It allows yourself to see yourself as not better, but either like them or worse than them. That promotes an empathy and a compassion for them instead of a condescending attitude as you begin to think about moving toward them and acting toward them. It changes your relationship to you, and it changes how you might move forward. Secondly, this grace perspective of seeing your own sin and your own need of grace first, does something to your view of them. It creates a sense that they're not different from you, less than you, but they're united with you as a person who needs grace. You might be dividing with them on the sin, and you might see that that sin needs to be confronted, but you see yourself as fundamentally aligned to them. They're not different from you. Not only that, but but, but it creates this empathy from you that invites in them. Not only do you see them differently, you invite them to come to you differently. They're not coming sniveling or looking to be punished because your, your, your judgment over them, your judgmentalism only allows them to, to bear themselves in sackcloth and ashes. It allows them to freely admit, yeah, you're right. When they feel like it's a safe place, to come and see the sawdust and come and get it removed, they're much more likely to come. And so a cycle of easier repentance starts 
to get created. So when you have a grace perspective on seeing your own sin first, it changes how you view you. It changes how you view them. It changes how they respond to you. And finally, this grace perspective does something to help both of you see the sin that you're talking about. If you come owning your own sin, your own weakness, gently saying to them that we need to deal with this sin that you see in them, it has the effect of changing how they view their own sin. Not only do they feel you're a safe place to repent, they see their sin as something they ought to get rid of. Because that sin is a cancer to the true, beautiful them that you see. To the real them. It's an alien thing corrupting the real, beautiful them that Christ wants to form in them. So sin begins to be seen not as part of my identity, therefore I can't admit I have it. But as something that's kind of alien to them, that has attached itself and embedded itself in them, like cancer does, that they want to get, be, to get rid of just as much as you want them to be free of. And that changing of the view of sin also just makes it so much easier in interpersonal relationships to create that dynamic of repentance and freedom. And by the way, we see these things in the whole life of Jesus. He lived a perfectly pure life, which in itself was a kind of holy statement about sin and about those around him. As people watched him, as they got to know him, and they saw his beauty and his holiness, it did kind of push them away for a moment because they felt judgment from him. I don't know if you remember when Simon Peter was fishing with other people. Jesus got in that their boat. And there was no fish. And Jesus said, throw your nets over on the other side. And they're like, it's, it's too late. The fish are gone. It's not the right time. And yet so many fish fell into that net that they knew it was a miracle. And they looked at the one who gave the miracle and they realized he's no mere man. This is God. And that judgmental, self-condemning attitude between him and them came upon them, although he deserved to judge them. It says that Simon Peter... In the book of Luke, it says, Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knee. He said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But what did Jesus say? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. I'm going to use flawed, sinful people like you to build my kingdom. You see the grace that the Son of Man gives that breaks down that sense of condemnation. And it's that grace that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. Jesus would later say about his own ministry of grace in Mark chapter 10, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus came, though he deserved to judge us because he's God. He came not to judge our sin, but to take the judgment for our sin so we could be freed from it. He allowed himself to be judged for sin on the cross so we might be freed from the guilt and the penalty of sin. God made him, as I said, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But that's what he did in his death. You know what he did in his resurrection? In his death, he bore the guilt. In his resurrection, he broke the power of sin to rule over us and to dominate us. We are freed now from its power by His rising and our faith in Him who broke its power. And so what Jesus did was, in His dying for us, He condemned sin 
bore the condemnation of sin and broke the power of sin. He broke the union of us and sin. He decoupled us from our sin so that our identity is no longer so attached to our sin. It frees people to run to Jesus for forgiveness for their sin and for power to forsake and get rid of their selfishness and their wrong. They know people who are Christians, that Jesus will take even the chief of sinners, even the worst of us, and he will forgive us our sin and remove the guilt of our sin and help remove the power of our sin because our sin is broken from us. That, that fragility that stops us from repenting is because our sin has been coupled to us. And Jesus decouples us and says, I died for your sin. I hate your sin, but you I love. And this grace perspective of seeing your own sin and sins first is following Jesus and saying, hey man, I love you. Therefore, I need to point this out. I've got my own sin. I'm under you. I'm not trying to prove that I'm better than you. This grace perspective allows us, before we approach anyone else, to move toward them with the right attitude and create the right culture of repentance. We get Jesus' perspective on sin. We'll hate the sin, but love the sinner. I remember once when I was being confronted about a character flaw that a friend saw in me, I started getting defensive about it, and the friend said, Now hold on. Dan, this is not about me judging you. This is about me wanting you to get better. It's not meant to condemn you, but it's meant to encourage you. You can be better. This is weighing you down. This is years ago, and I still remember it. When I saw that perspective, it invited me and encouraged me to stop being defensive and move toward him and move against and away from the sin. So what is Jesus saying? Obey the gospel principle. Do not be judgmental. Adopt the gospel perspective. See your own sin. Move toward the person you confront with a perspective of grace. Seeing your own sin, repenting of your own sin, owning your own sin. Now, finally, thirdly, Jesus says, adopt, I mean, follow a gospel process. Obey a gospel principle. Don't be judgmental. Adopt a gospel perspective. See and own your own sin first. Finally, follow a gospel process in dealing with sin in other people. What does he say in verse 5? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then he says, do not give dogs to what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and attack you. That's a strange sentence. We'll get to that. But the first one's pretty obvious. Here's the process. Take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your own sin. Repent of your own sin. Repent of even the own ways you do what exactly is the sin you're seeing in other people. Let your own awareness of your own sin, your own repentance of it, inform you and inform them as you move toward them. I think Jesus is using a metaphor here of someone removing something from someone's eye. And if you've ever done that, parents, we've all done that with our kids. They get eyelashes or dirt or or little tiny specks in their eyes, splinters, even more delicate It's not something to do lightly. You do it carefully. You need your best eyes. I was watching a a drama about brain surgery. They need magnified, uh, massive magnification as they look into the person's brain. They need their eyesight as clear and as, as perspicuous as possible. Because surgeons are seeing something small and taking it out of something delicate like a brain or an eye. They need perfect vision. 
So we approach the eye delicately and thoughtfully, lest we do damage to that eye, whether we're a parent or even a surgeon. We can't have anything blocking our vision. So what Jesus is saying is you're doing heart surgery when you're confronting people on their sin. It requires that amount of perspicuity, of clarity of vision. You need to see their sin clearly, and you need to see your sin clearly. You need to remove any impediments to seeing the situation well. So take the needed care. Do the heart surgery first. Cleanse yourself. Confess your own sin. Realize your own sin. Remove it. Get it out of the way. And then approach theirs like a delicate surgeon, like a caring parent. I'm going to take this out of your eye. So remove that speck. Taking the care needed. When, when, when I have to take something out of my child's eye, I have, to, I have to kind of stop them from moving. We have to move carefully and slowly. We have to isolate the eyelash, which is you know, getting in and pull it out, or, or maybe wash their eye thoroughly, put in some saline solution, something to try and clear it out. We isolate the movements. We hold the head still. We ignore other issues, focus in. We calm their fears. It's their eye. This is what the gospel process looks like. Focus on this. Stop other stuff. Remove extraneous issues. Don't get distracted. We're talking about a pattern of sin or flaw in character. Don't add other stuff onto it. It's the speck we're talking about. Let's focus on that. Delicately, carefully, lovingly address that. Lovingly assure them that this is what we are talking about right now. This is not their identity. This is the sin that's weighing them down. Remind them the speck is hurting them. It's a cancer. We want them to be better. The speck is impeding their flourishing. We have their own flourishing at heart. We know we have our own issues. We hope they have our flourishing at heart. We will welcome similar inspecting of our inspects in similar gospel grace processes. You see, that's what we do. And then when we see the speck and we locate where it is, we make decisions. How do we remove it? If the speck is in too delicate a position, we might not do it. We might, we might send them to a medical professional. If it just needs gentle washing with water, if we can get it with our hands or a tweezer to remove, we make those kinds of decisions carefully, thoughtfully, and lovingly. We attend to proper recovery to ensure the site is restored. This is a gospel process, careful, focused, loving attention to the speck, where it is, how delicate it might be, getting the right level of expertise at the kind of surgery needed. That's the gospel process of, of, of seeing sin in other people and carefully and lovingly moving in and, and, and removing our own log in our eye and then gently, carefully, lovingly focusing on that speck, taking it out. Finally, a word about this last verse. Don't throw pearls before pigs or swine. Give to dogs what is holy. This verse is very hard to translate. Many scholars, including D.A. Carson and R.T. France, two of the leading scholars on the book of Matthew, they're unsure that it actually applies to this passage. France thinks it might. He thinks it might be showing that the unity of the church is a pearl. So don't throw it to people who don't care about the unity of the church. Carson's not even sure it applies. It might be about telling people the good news about Jesus. But the cross-references in the ESV Bible may be pointing to some way that it connects. Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8 are the cross-reference. And they say, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets themselves abused. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs entry. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and they will love you. 
if this is a fair interpretive lens to tie it to this verse, it seems to me Jesus is saying this. Even if you approach someone with a gospel perspective, not judgmentally, even if you use a gospel process of carefully, lovingly removing the, the beam in your own eye and focusing on the speck in their eye, isolating that, ensuring that they understand this is a safe place to repent and you're not above them and you have your own sin, there will still be people who don't receive it well. Be okay with that. If they reject the loving gospel process with a loving gospel perspective, be content. Do not keep trying to appease them or to wrangle repentance out of them. They're like these dogs mentioned here that can become dangerous to you. They can, they can turn on you. The pigs here are probably wild pigs. Therefore, there's, there's danger in the way the Proverbs 9 talks about correcting a scoffer. Be okay. You tried. You did their best. When this happens, apply a gospel perspective towards being rejected for your loving attempt. For being rejected in this way, you're simply following again the footsteps of Jesus, who himself lovingly came to this world to confront it with our sin, to confront us with our selfishness, to confront us with this cancer of self-righteousness that is killing us and alienating us from God, who will judge us for it. John chapter 1, John, his apostle, says this about Jesus. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Jesus came to his own. And they scoffed at him when he confronted them about their hypocrisy, about their self-righteousness, about their sin. They rejected him. They beat him. They had him falsely arrested tried and convicted, tortured and crucified. But in love and grace, he allowed them to nail him to a cross. And on the cross, he even said, Father, forgive them. You see, in love and grace, he allowed his blood to be poured out and his life to be taken to remove the infinite beam of our sin in the eyes of God, the infinitely offensive guilt and wrong of our own pride and self-righteousness. He allowed all of the guilt of all of that to be accounted, to be put on him. He was made guilty of our self-righteousness and pride, that he might break the guilt of that sin as it applies to us and take it upon himself and break the power of sin as it afflicts us. So obey the gospel principle. Do not be judgmental when you judge. Do not get self-righteous. Adopt the gospel perspective. See yourself as a sinner in need of grace, equally or more so than the person that you see sin in. Follow a gospel process. Remove the beam in your own eye. Confess your own sin. Repent of your sin. Take that repentant attitude as you lovingly, carefully, graciously, in isolation, remove and decouple the person from their sin for their sake and their love. And be willing to follow your Savior in being rejected, even if you follow those things. For indeed, this is what he has called us to do and be. And if we do that, we the church will be a light to a world that doesn't know how to be judging without being judgmental. Help us to show them that we can move and match holiness toward grace, mercy towards justice, love towards holiness. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you 
I pray that we would follow you in this way, in coming not to judge, but to heal, in coming in with a grace perspective to overlook, to have our sins overlooked and then to be willing to forgive sins as we see them, to confront our own sin first before we confront them in others and to confront them in others in such a humble, careful, loving, healing way that we invite them to come and see their sin as a cancer that needs to be broken in their lives. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.